you want to get out your sermon outline. Should say the Sabbath of the Kingdom on it. It's good to see a mostly full house today. It's a sign that summer's over and everybody's come back. It's always easier to preach to more people than less people. So, as many of you know, I started teaching once again at Reformed Theological Seminary in D.C. I teach the, the first major preaching class. And this week I put this passage in front of them, Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 14, and asked them to find the main point. And uh, this little exercise I do that frustrates them to no end, um, because they know it's usually not what it seems at first. And that's certainly the case today. So as we turn to Matthew 12, verses 1 through 14, be thinking about what's the main point. It may not be what you first think of. Matthew chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Please listen carefully as this is God's word. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what it is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? so that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. And once again, you bring us to this amazing gospel to learn more about Jesus. We ask this morning that you would give us the grace to understand what's really going on here. We don't understand how Jesus can break the rules and yet we spend so much of our lives trying to keep from breaking the rules. Make things clear to us. Enlighten our minds, refresh our spirits. By your spirit, open this gospel and help us to see Jesus. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Last week I read about a conference in which a very well-known speaker related the cultural and value differences between his current home in the Pacific Northwest and his childhood home in a small town in the Southwest. Now, these cultural and value differences found their expression 
and a set of rules. As a young man, his church culture enforced a prescribed set of rules. No drinking, no dancing, no card playing, no long hair. These rules could not be violated. To do so would not only invite censure from the community, but he was warned it would put his eternal standing with Almighty God in jeopardy. And as sometimes happens with this kind of upbringing, the speaker moved as far away from his hometown and the rigidity of his hometown as he could, and he escaped to the Pacific Northwest, part of the United States known for its laid-back attitude and free-thinking ways. He believed he found a community he would be free from all the constricting rules and legalisms of his childhood. And he was in for a surprise. Because while he indeed moved away from the rules of his childhood, he discovered that the rules of his new neighborhood involved minute intricacies relating to garbage and the banning of plastic bags in the grocery store, and the banning of skateboarders in the common areas and musicians in the town square. And the wrath of God may not have been invoked in the threats of punishment, but the speaker suffered the self-righteous censure of this community, just as bound by legalism as the one in which he grew up. In both communities, he found the rules seem more love than the people they were meant to guide. You know, in reading this story, you can get a little embarrassed at the sting of self-recognition and finding yourself within the story. You know, it's easy to look down on one set of rules, uh, perhaps elevating another set of rules. And I kind of cringe at my own self-righteous response. And regardless of the set of rules that you choose to align with, human beings seem to be lovers of legalism. Why is it that people become legalists regardless of the rules involved? The desire to have clear boundaries, a concern for decency and order to guide the communities, both necessary and prudent, but somehow, rules meant to offer guidelines for living grow into gods that we come to worship. Gods who serve as judge and jury for all who shall fall short of their dictates. And boundaries become walls, dividing one from another. And the enforcers draw lines around the righteous and the unrighteous even when it comes to the use of plastic bags. And of course, legalism prompts you to declare your virtue, your rules as the clearly superior standard. People find it easier to love legalism because it's easier than loving people. People are inconsistent. People are imperfect. People are easily controlled and confined by rules. And then Jesus shows up. Jesus frequently shatters all of the easy definitions put in place by the legalists of his day. And he upends their expectations. He eludes all of the tightly drawn categories of those who try to control him. 
He kept company with those who were deemed unrighteous, prostitutes, tax collectors, other sinners. He earned the label of a glutton and a drunkard by those whose laws drew clear boundaries over what constitutes appropriate company. And for those who had clear rules about the Messiah, Jesus blew those completely out of the water. He steered clear of political power. He stood silently before those who would order his crucifixion. For those who wanted a rebel Jesus, freed from all laws, defying all the conventions, he answers by challenging his followers towards a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, the most religious of the religious in his day. He told his followers he didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill it. And far from being a measure for establishing self-righteousness or creating a new legalism, Jesus fulfills the law by revealing its true intention. And here he shows the true intention of the Sabbath laws for rest on the seventh day by not rigidly enforcing uh, rest, but by healing those who were diseased and broken and kept separate from their communities. The rest God intends for uh, humanity ex expressed not in the rule of non-work, but in the spirit of doing and bringing good to all those in need of reconciliation. Fulfilling the law, he restored relationships, opened the door for transformation, reconciled people to one another and to God. Indeed, when he was questioned about what's the greatest commandment, if you remember, he replies later on, Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus understood that the ground of the law, the base, the foundation, it's a love for God and a love for people. And to replace the love of people with a love of rules misses the point. Loving the rules for rules' sake produces self-love and self-righteousness. Loving God produces love for others. So as this speaker suggested in his twin stories of uh, community legalism, People often miss the command to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. And as legalists of many stripes, we prefer to apply our own rules broadly, widely as a function of our own self-love. But the idolatry of legalism and the attempt to use it to prove our own self-righteousness, we ironically depict the truth that Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 where he said, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And that's the issue in today's text. See, the Hebrew word Shabbat, from which we get Sabbath, means rest, and explains why Matthew introduces these Sabbath conflicts at this point in the story, because the end of chapter 11, Jesus offered rest to all who come to him. But now he's telling us there's, there's no rest in just mere ritual 
uh, observances. I call this sermon the Sabbath of the Kingdom, but it's not about the Sabbath itself. But the Sabbath gives the context for the real issue, which is legalism. So let's turn to our text, Matthew 12, starting at verse 1. And the first thing we see is that the legalists confront Jesus. The legalists confront Jesus. That's the first blank there in your outline, I hope. Starting at verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So Jesus is confronted for failing to keep the accepted rules of religious devotion. And I'm using the, the phrase accepted rules very deliberately to distinguish them from God's laws. And sometimes those categories overlap. More often they don't. And as the events of Matthew 12 unfold, Jesus is being accused of breaking the fourth commandment. It's a serious matter. This is a serious charge. It's being confronted for failing to keep the Sabbath. Why did the Jews go into exile for 70 years? We just saw in our responsive reading for Jeremiah, they didn't keep the Sabbath, they were kicked out of Jerusalem. Seventy years of Sabbath basically means God took back all the Sabbath rest that they had ignored for the last 300-some years. And now Jesus. And this is a huge deal. You know, this they think this is why, you know, this is one of the reasons we got sent into exile, and now Jesus is breaking it. He can't do that. So what happens here? Well, Jesus' disciples walk through a grain field, and they pick and ate, ate some of the grain. And there's nothing wrong with what they did. It's expressly allowed in Deuteronomy chapter 23. The problem is they did it on the Sabbath, which the Pharisees said is a violation of the fourth commandment against working on the Sabbath. You may be thinking, how is eating that work? So let's look at how what their train of thought is here. See, before we can actually accuse Jesus of breaking God's law, it's important to recognize the religious bigwigs uh, of Jesus' day had made certain additions to Sabbath law. In fact, they had developed a series of 39 clarifications of what work was. So you would know what you could and couldn't do. And they developed Sabbath regulations that related specifically to the issues raised in today's text. A Jew could not pick a handful of grain to eat on the Sabbath because picking the grain is considered reaping. And rubbing it between your hands is considered threshing and chewing it is considered grinding. But it's okay if you're starving. But that's pretty difficult to prove. I mean, when was the last time your teen claimed he was starving having not eaten anything in the last 20 minutes. I mean, the critical issue is the religious leaders failed to distinguish what God said from what they said about what God said. The two came to be viewed as identical. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, you have the Torah, the first five books 
of the Bible, commonly known as the law. But you also have the Mishnah, which is writings of the rabbis about the law. And there's actually four or five different sets, books of writing. You have the Talmud, which is authoritative interpretations of the law, kind of like a Bible commentary with legal authority. And one section of the Talmud has 24 chapters of Sabbath law interpretations. And so it can be considered breaking the law if you violate the rules of the Bible or the Mishnah or the Talmud. And it's nearly impossible to know all the rules, kind of like the laws in our country. And so it's nearly impossible to keep all the rules. And it hasn't changed. It's still the same. Today, my daughter, uh, Sarah, just moved from Chesterfield, Missouri, suburb of St. Louis, uh, to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. But back in Chesterfield, they have some unique rules to help the Orthodox Jews who live there keep the law. Chesterfield agreed to designate... This is a true story. You can't make this stuff up. They agreed to designate a section of the city as a special area for the local synagogue. And since Orthodox Jews aren't allowed to carry anything, including children, from one place to another on the Sabbath, it meant the mothers of young children can't attend the synagogue. There's no baby wearing on the Sabbath. But by getting Chesterfield to designate the telephone lines from Olive Road to Woods Mill to Conway to White Road as an aruv, a ritual enclosure, they would call that ritual enclosure a domain, a house. And then everyone living within that area, that domain, could carry a child then to the synagogue because they're not leaving the house. I told you, I'm not making this up. It's true. The synagogue paid the city of Chesterfield $1 a year for this designation. And my understanding is Orthodox synagogues do this all over the country in all kinds of communities, big and small. These things still go on. As I said, the prohibitions in this text are reaping, threshing, and winnowing, and the disciples broke all three. And so the Pharisees are outraged. They thought they have now caught Jesus and his followers dead to rights in a flagrant disregard for the law. But instead of being defensive, Jesus goes on the offensive, and the confronted becomes the confronter. And so next we see Jesus confronts the legalists, starting at verse 3. Jesus confronts the legalist. He says to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law? I mean, have you not read... Have you not read? Who's he talking to? Pharisees. They're the experts in this. Back to verse 5. Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? 
I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. One of the things that we're going to see uh, in the Gospel of Matthew is it's usually not wise to go one-on-one -on -one with Jesus. Because Jesus, in response, appeals to the Old Testament, the book that the Pharisees are supposed to be the experts in. And he gives a threefold reply to their accusations. First, we see Jesus appeals to the king. He appeals to a king, verses 3 and 4. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? Jesus appeals to an incident in the life of Israel's greatest king, their greatest hero, the founder of Jerusalem as the seat of government, the leader of the golden age of Israel. And he appeals to a particular Old Testament story in 1 Samuel 21, where David ate the consecrated bread in the tabernacle called the bread of the presence or the showbread. Now, this bread is placed in God's presence to symbolize that God is the source of Israel's strength and nourishment and to remind Israel of their dependence on God for all things physical and spiritual. And it's considered holy, can only be eaten by the priests. And yet David and his soldiers ate it. In this story, David's a desperate, famished uh, refugee. He's fleeing from King Saul, and him and his men are starving. And they beg the priest Ahimelech for bread. That's a great name, Ahimelech. Those of you who are expecting, just take it under advisement. The only bread the priest had is the showbread. And so he gave it to him and they ate it. And according to Jesus, David's actions have direct application to the accusation of the Pharisees. David violated a religious rule even one found in the Bible, and yet it's okay with God because it's an act of necessity. Certainly, if David can eat the showbread, then the son of David had a right to eat his father's grain from the field. And if King David broke the law and wasn't condemned, surely Jesus could break men's traditions and be guiltless. So that's the first thing. He appeals to the king, demonstrating an act of necessity. Second thing is he appeals to the priests. The priests, verses 5 and 6. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? This time, rather than refer to a particular story, he describes the simple fact that everyone knows, everyone recognizes as normal throughout the scriptures that the priests work on the Sabbath. It's their hardest day of work. I understand that. For 22 years, Sunday has been my hardest day's work. In fact, you'd be surprised at how often I'm teased for only working one day a week. <laughs> and sometimes for only working one hour on that one day. Well, that's far from true. It is true that it happens on the Lord's Day, the day we've set aside for rest and worship. And yet no one, not the strictest Sabbatarians among us, accuses me or any of the other pastors of violating the Sabbath because we work on Sunday. And frankly, the same goes for all the people who serve in children's ministry on Sunday morning, or the worship leaders, or the sound crew, or the setup crew, or the ushers, or the greeters. They all work. In fact, their service is an obedience to the law given by God. 
And this suggests that men's traditions about the Sabbath are wrong, for they contradict God's own law. But it's not a, a violation because the Sabbath principle is never meant to restrict serving God. And so if you come in to set up tables or to do sound or to do nursery, it's okay. You're serving God by doing those things. By the way, let me encourage all those who serve God so faithfully on Sunday so the rest of the congregation can come and worship and fellowship and learn. You are a blessing to the rest of us. Thank you. And if you're not in that group getting thanked, you probably need to be. Just saying. So he appeals to the king, he appeals to the priests, and finally he appeals to the prophets. He appeals to the prophets by quoting Hosea 6. He had already quoted this back in Matthew 9. Look now at verse 7. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. The prophet's point is that God's far more concerned about our hearts than our outward demonstrations of religious devotion. When it comes right down to it, a heart of mercy always trumps an animal sacrifice or perfect attendance or special music, no matter how beautiful, or even a great sermon. The Sabbath law is given to Israel as a mark of her relationship to God. It is an act of mercy for both man and beast to get needed rest each week. And any religious law that is contrary to mercy should be looked on with suspicion. God wants mercy, not mere religious observance. He wants love, not legalism. The Pharisees who sacrificed to obey the Sabbath rules thought they were serving God. When they accused Christ, they thought they were defending God. But I think it's interesting to note that Jesus appeals to the prophets, priests, and king, covering all of the Old Testament, a point the Pharisees surely wouldn't have missed. Of course, we know that he is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And there are three greater statements in Matthew, one here in this text, which we read uh, in verse 6, as a priest, he is greater than the temple. And then at the end of the chapter, we'll read, as a prophet, he is greater than Jonah, and as a king, he is greater than Solomon. He is the great prophet, priest, and king in one. And so Jesus lays out for us the divine principle that people shouldn't suffer under cold, heartless legalism. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, Jesus is telling the Pharisees, if you really understood Hosea and Micah, that God desires merciful, compassionate actions over ritual and rules, you wouldn't have condemned my disciples for eating the grain. A thousand years ago, Ahimelech the priest understood mercy and he lived it out not just with grain, but by using the consecrated bread to feed the hungry. Pharisees, you don't know the Bible as well as you think you do. You need to show mercy. And then to top it off, he says in verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That got their attention. Sabbath is part of the moral law. That never goes away. Ten commandments given by God himself. Anyone claiming to be greater than the law is putting themselves on par with God. And Jesus is making that claim. Just so you don't understand or misunderstand this declaration, 
then he backs it up. He's going to give a vivid demonstration of what he means, what he's talking about. And so doing, Jesus confronts legalism. Not just the legalists, but legalism. Start with me at verse 9. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. A man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Or of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So now Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. And the question the religious leaders ask him in verse 10 is sort of a rhetorical uh, question. They're not seeking information or clarification when they ask him, is it, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They expect a negative answer because their interpretation of the Sabbath doesn't allow anything else. See, another one of the rules that they had stated if a person became ill on the Sabbath, treatment can only be given to keep him alive. Treatment to help him actually get better was work. And that's forbidden. That's just helping him get better. And Jesus has done more way, uh, way more than that with this man uh, with the withered hand. You know, he's not just keeping him alive. He's not just helping him get better. He heals him. It's a dramatic change. And once again, there's nothing in the Torah, the actual Bible, that demands that you refrain from healing on the Sabbath. So here Jesus is only breaking their man-made additions to God's law. He's defying their legalism. And there's a good reason for that. First, we see that legalism demands extra-biblical conformity. Extra-biblical. It demands conformity to an extra-biblical standard, usually by turning a principle into a law. And that's a critical point, because law-keeping is not automatically legalism. Sometimes it's just obedience. Good Presbyterian. <laughs> when God says, thou shalt not murder, we don't look, call those who take that commandment seriously legalists. When God says, thou shalt not commit adultery, we don't dismiss faithful spouses as legalists. A legalist is one who elevates a man-made rule to the level of a divine commandment. You have to understand the difference here. It may take a good biblical practice, a good habit, something like fasting, and turn it into a hard and fast rule. You have to do it at this time and so long and so much. And the process distorting what the Bible actually says. So the first thing, it's extra biblical. Second thing is that legalism fails to read the Bible carefully. You know, twice in our passage, Jesus says to the Bible experts, have you not read, knowing that they'd read that before? It was part of their job. It's a crucial question. Have you not read? You keepers of the rules, haven't you read what God revealed to you? You leaders of the people of the book, haven't you read the book? Now, I have to stop. 
right here because we have to ask, how many times would Jesus have to say that to us when we're arguing our viewpoints and excusing our behaviors? Have we actually read and studied and believed what he said in the scriptures? Because, friends, legalism always fails to read the Bible carefully. In fact, I think most legalism in the church, virtually every man-made rule that sidetracks people from devotion to Christ and focuses them on the rules would disappear overnight if the Bible were taken more seriously and read more honestly. Third, legalism places possessions over people. We find Jesus encountering a man with a withered hand as he enters the synagogue. And it seems that the Pharisees decide to use this man for their own ends. In verse 9, they ask him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. And oh, by the way, here's a man with a crippled hand. And Jesus answers them. Verse 11, Which one of you who has a sheep if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of course, anyone would. Anyone can see that rescuing a sheep in no way violates the spirit of the Sabbath law. But then Jesus asks, verse 12, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. But Jesus values people more than possessions, and legalism does the opposite. Let me try to bring this home to evangelical church today. You know, it's easy to look down our nose at first century Pharisees, but it's hard to see our own legalism. And I told you at the beginning about a church community that restricted people from, you know, drinking, dancing, smoking, or going with girls that do. Um, you know, that attitude, take one of those, smoking, it makes cigarettes more important than the people. Because they're willing to write off a human being because of cigarettes. And similar things are done with respect to dress and hairstyle and jewelry and body piercings and tattoos. And almost anything can become more important to us than the people if we're not careful. Legalism puts possessions, things, over people. It puts style over substance. And then we see that legalism breaks fellowship over these rules, breaks relationships over these rules. Jesus heals the man with the withered hand. Verse 14, we read, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Legalism is such a powerful stronghold on some people. I mean, the law is our automatic defense mechanism. We love the law. Because the law gives us a wonderful sense of security. It's black and white. There's no wiggle room. There's no room for compassion, uh, which can be unpredictable. It can be uncontrollable. And the law gives us this quick way to measure our spirituality against the spirituality of others. Preachers love the law. I mean, we're preachers. We're up here preaching God's word. Aren't we so good? It allows us to judge other people. And that happens in the church today. People get judged by political party affiliation or whether they've learned enough of the Bible or they have regular quiet times or they parent God's way or share our commitment to the right social causes or the right doctrinal issues. All of that is legalism at work. 
And in declaring himself Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus is again affirming equality with God, for God had established the Sabbath. He proved that claim by healing the man with the withered hand. And it's so sad that the religious leaders are using this man and his handicap as a weapon against Jesus. But the Lord isn't afraid of them. Not doing good on the Sabbath day or any other day is the same as doing bad. And Jesus argues that a farmer can care for his animals on the Sabbath. Shouldn't we care for man made in the image of God? And they respond to this deliberate challenge by planning on how they're going to kill him. Remember, they accused him earlier of blasphemy when he healed the paralytic in Matthew 9. But this is worse. He has deliberately violated the law of God. He had worked on the Sabbath by healing this man. But the story doesn't stop there because we really haven't looked at this man yet. We really haven't looked at the man who was healed. Because the man in this text is, without a doubt, without question, he's suffering physically. The word wither uh, is used to speak of this very unique condition in which the muscles and often the bones themselves are shrunken due to a loss of nerves or a stiffening of joints. It's not the same, but it's similar to ALS, or what we know as Lou Gehrig's disease. And when it results from anything but recent disease, it's incurable. So the Greek word here for withered implies this man hadn't been born that way, but some disease, some illness has taken the strength from him. His hand has literally lost the moisture of life. And that which gave it strength has been dried out of it, and it's this withered, useless, wilted thing with which he could do nothing. Now imagine going through life without the use of your hand. And all that we do with our hands, can you imagine not being able to use one of them? Here's a man who, for whatever reason, had contracted a terrible disease that cost him the use of his hand. It would keep him from holding a job. It would keep him from having the respect of the people. It would keep him from going to the temple and drawing close to God. And I think it would help us to understand what's happening here if we heard it from his perspective. So listen carefully. This is my attempt telling you what it would be like from his perspective. Yet again, I went to the synagogue on the Sabbath in hopes of seeing Jesus there. My withered hand has become an immense burden. I had heard of his healing power. Perhaps I'll find him. Maybe he'll heal me too. Pharisees are sitting right up front, as is their custom. So I have to maneuver around a bit so I, I can get a good vantage point where I can be seen as well as See, Pharisees look at me with contempt. They know why I'm here. They know why I'd worked my way to the front. It's easy for them to be scornful of me wanting healing even on the Sabbath, but then again, none of them have withered hands. Then Jesus came in. I spotted him before he was through the door. Maybe this time. Maybe this time. Well, the Pharisees saw him too. They watch them like big cats watch their prey. No movement escapes their attention. Their heads swivel in unison as Jesus walks to the front. He walked right over to me as if this was set up in advance, as if he could read the Pharisees' minds, as if he could read mine. 
Come and stand here where everyone can see, he said. It's a calm voice laced with authority. Reminded me of the stories I had heard of Alexander, the great military commander. I stood up without even thinking about what I was doing. Jesus slowly turned and faced the teachers. He's a strong man. The muscles of his arms are toned and powerful looking, his hands strong. I'd heard that he'd been a carpenter. Tough work for tough men. The Pharisees, despite being authorities themselves, don't respond to authority very well. They just stare at him. No one spoke, not one. The silence was deafening. You could feel the tension as he stood there. His eyes are cold gray, the color of a well-used sword. The inevitable question finally came, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus looked at them hard, pity or contempt, I couldn't tell. But then he spoke, his voice slowly turned from ice to fire, soft yet clear. Which one of you as a sheep that falls in a pit on the Sabbath will not take hold of it? and lift it out of how much more value is a man than a sheep. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then without even looking at me, the command rang out, stretch out your hand. I'd forgotten that I was standing there in front of him. I was so engrossed in the situation, I'd totally forgotten why I was there. So I stretched out my hand, almost afraid to look, and it was good. It was healed. It was full and healthy and whole. It felt like an old friend had returned home. And I looked into Jesus' eyes and now they sparkled. My life had been changed and he knew it. He grinned at me and with calloused hands reached up and wiped the tears that were forming at the corner of my eyes. The lump in my throat was so big I couldn't speak, so I just grinned back. I was so enthralled with this man Jesus that I didn't notice the Pharisees quietly slipping away. It is lawful to do, to do good on the Sabbath. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you've given us a king. And here again, we see your son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. We don't like people who have the same sins and faults and weaknesses that we do, and we don't like the Pharisees because they're too much like us. They're legalists, probably made good Presbyterians. We hate that. Teach us what it means to do good on the Sabbath. Lead us to acts of mercy and acts of service and acts of necessity. Show us how judging others is so harmful to our own souls. And help us to look in Jesus' face and see his smile. Thank you that he is the true prophet, priest, and king. And thank you that he calls us into his kingdom and that he shall reign forever and ever. Amen.